Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning again. It is the 3rd of March, 2022, and it's a Thursday. Are you thirsty? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Ooh, I do. I do. Let's uh, be people who are drinking deeply today of the living word of the living God that we might be equipped and prepared to enter into this day that God has made, acknowledging his mercies are new every morning and that that is such good news because we need his mercies new every morning. Amen. Uh, I'm Carmen LeBurge. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen on the Faith Radio Network. Uh, I saw a bumper sticker yesterday that, um, well, I just really wanted to pull over for a moment and let the person uh, get away f- from where I was driving because they had a bumper sticker that said judgment-free zone. And I thought, <laughs> I want to be on the road with a person uh, who thinks they're driving in a judgment-free zone. I want a person, you know, driving uh, on the correct side of the double yellow line, on the correct side of the single white line, a person who stops at that red, I don't know what shape is that. It's not an octagon. It doesn't have that many sides. All right, you can at me. Uh, You can always text me, 877-933-2484. A yield sign has three sides. How many sides does a stop sign have? That's what I'm looking for right now, Uh, your help in that. All right, so um, judgment. I want to talk for a moment about um, judgment. Um, We make judgments all the time. You judge whether or not to tune in or tune out. You judge whether or not this is worthy of your time, your attention, your consideration. I am so thankful um, for those of you who have... uh, Who's in whose judgment you've said, yeah, you know what? I'm going to listen for another minute and see what she has to say about judgment. You judge what to wear. You judge what to eat, where to go, how to get there. You judge whether or not you're going to brush your teeth. Like, that's a judgment you make. It's a judgment call. You judge what to say or not to say to others that you meet along life's way. Like, life is a series of judgment calls. We make judgments every nanosecond. Um, those who take up jobs with any kind of authority over others make judgments that affect everyone in the system beneath them, everyone in the system of which they are a part. Like, so enter into the judgment conversation, the president of the United States. Now, this is a person, whoever it is, the president of the United States has to make judgments all day long that do not just affect themselves and not just 33 million Americans, but the world. And so that's why we want a person who doesn't just have good character, you know, not just a good guy, not just, uh, you know, a woman that we'd like to hang out with, but a good, even godly person of what I will call sober judgment. I want a person of good judgment in serving in a role where they have to make judgments every day that affect not only themselves and those around them, but everybody else. So, in fact, the citizens who vote to elect the president, we the people make a judgment. 
we judge between candidates. The election process is a process of collective judgment. So part of the judgment process is seeking to understand how a person goes about making decisions. How is it that they judge? So um, if I am going to consider whether or not I'm going to submit myself to you as an authority in something, I am going to want to know how you make the judgment calls that you make. How do you decide? What, what is the um, filter through which you are making your decisions? Now, as a Christian, I, uh, I am looking for a person operating out of a Christian, a biblical, a gospel, a redemptive worldview. And you got to make a judgment call. So here's why I lift this up today. Um, The current president of the United States, Joe Biden, claims to be a Roman Catholic Christian. So on the face of it, that would lead you to believe that he is pro-life. After all, the Roman Catholic Church places a very high value on human life. It's firmly opposed to abortion. And yet the president is not willing to quote, here's the direct quote from yesterday, make that judgment for other people. Interesting. Here's a president who compels us to do all kinds of things based on his moral judgment. Um, I won't offer the litany there because it would be a digression from the conversation that I'm trying to illuminate, which is a question, which is a conversation about the judgment related to abortion. But suffice it to say, the president wants to compel people to do all kinds of things based on his moral outlook, based on his moral judgments. And yet when it comes to abortion, he says this, I'm not going to make that judgment for other people. Why not? Why on this issue does he reserve judgment? Because he's making a judgment, a political one. He's judging the losses that he would suffer politically as being of greater value to him than the political capital he would have to spend to speak what I believe he knows to be true and right in this matter that that is a human life and abortion is murder. He has said that he is personally pro-life, that he is personally opposed to abortion, but he stops short of a willingness to lead others to a right judgment in this matter. Why? Why? Why reserve judgment on this matter as a person in a position of such significant authority? It's a judgment call. So the question for each one of us today is this. Am I willing to speak the truth even when it costs me something? Politically, relationally, whatever. It's a judgment call each one of us has to make every day. And I pray that we are people who are rightly dividing the word of truth and then speaking that truth in love. In a world where poor judgment has become an epidemic. Dr. Peter Kopsner is going to join us next. We are going to talk about a phrase that we have now heard over and over and over again. The phrase is, glory to Ukraine. What happens in your spirit when you hear that? That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen.
Joining us now, Dr. Peter Kapsner. I don't even know where to tell people to find you anymore because today you're in Scotland. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Carmen. I am in Scotland this morning. My uh, oldest daughter, second child, is studying at the University of Edinburgh, where I uh, did some of my work as well. And so uh, came to visit her, and it's been absolutely delightful this year. She's trying to fix what you broke when you were there last time. <laughs> Clearly. Well, I didn't want to say that out loud, but you've seen the photos. We don't need to, we don't need to send those around social media. <laughs> okay, so um, uh, maybe we should dispense with the, one, with the one headline that I have out of Scotland and then spend the bulk of our conversation in just a moment on the question of this phrase, glory to Ukraine. So can I do the um, are you responsible or uh, did you break the clock that um, uh, under consideration and conversation uh, in the UK? What, what is going on here? I love this story. You're going to have to remind me about how much the, the proposed bill was. But this is one of those ancient. Well, I don't know, because it's one over. of those. It's not a dollar sign. It's one of those funny it's euro signs. Yeah. So it's, oh, it's, it's a pound. pound. 50,000 of those. It would be 50,000 yeah, of those. So I don't know how many U.S. dollars that would be, but it would be a lot. Yeah, it would be. It would be probably somewhere around $90,000 or so. But uh, but yeah, it's, you know, there's so many little villages all over the English countryside and the Scottish countryside. And, and so many of them are marked by these really old school churches with big bell towers. So it's really fun to go into the churches and see them as the center of the villages, especially during the time of the Protestant Reformation. But but even before that, when the Catholic Church was the center of so many villages. And and this is a great story. This is a clock where it hadn't been working for a number of years. It had been stuck on 1203. And so they said, God, <laughs> we're going to need 50,000 pounds or $90,000 to fix this clock. And and the guy and his son went up there with a, with a, with a $3 can of WD-40, which we, we all know, everybody listening this morning knows all of the <laughs> wonders of WD-40 and what it can all fix. Apparently, it can fix ancient European clock towers just like that, too. So they got it working with a $3 can of WD-40. And Carmen... You know, you, I'm sure you've been in some of these churches. There's statues to saints all over the place in these in these churches. If anybody is worthy of a statue in front of the church, it is this guy and his son holding a can of WD-40. It's outstanding. <laughs> I love these guys. So hats off today to Rick Haywood, 47, and Jay Foley, 15, who managed to get the clock going um, uh, again with a can of WD-40, saving a lot, saving the church a lot of money. Um, and making, I think, the Rocket Chemical Company who who created WD-40. I'm sure that's not the name of it anymore, but that's what it was right. when I think it's now just called the WD-40 Company. But um, hats off to them, right? Like this should be your ad campaign. You should get these guys and you should get over there and you should make an ad because, uh, yeah, WD-40 and duct tape. Apparently, that's really the only two things any that's of us all really you need. A bit of super glue every once in a while, too. But those three weapons, and, you can fix anything with those things. And maybe a rubber band. I feel yeah, like if I were like in my little secret, you know, kit, I need a, I need, I might need a rubber band. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. Um, all right. So we're talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner, and yes, we are going to have a very serious conversation here in just a moment about this phrase we've been hearing. And I will just say that every time I've heard it, you know, it catches in my spirit a little bit. So I hear um, people saying glory to Ukraine, and I hear it um, almost as like a walk off at the end of a conversation glory to Ukraine. And so I got uh, to wondering, what does that mean? What is it in reference to? And how does God feel about that? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
We're talking with Dr. Peter Kapsner. I am asking him about this phrase, glory to Ukraine. Um, it comes from, my producer Paul Perot tells me, it comes from the Ukrainian national anthem. So, Peter, what have you to say about this use of this phrase, glory to Ukraine? Yeah, you said an interesting thing just before we stepped away for a second there, Carmen, and that was that when we hear it, there's there's a catch in our spirit maybe about it. I'm speaking about you and me both on this. And, and I think I have that interior impulse that is supportive of what's going on with Ukraine because I do think that there there's an unjust aggression happening from Vladimir Putin and the Russian um, nation as they're invading Ukraine. So so my spirit, is, it recognizes the injustice of this. But my spirit also catches when we start talking about glory to Ukraine. That's an entirely different move than being supportive of Ukraine in terms of trying to repel the Russian forces. And and so this draws us into the question of war and how do we understand supporting a country in war. And and I'll tell you what, um, it's, it's maybe not as uh, new of a topic. It certainly isn't as new of a topic in classes like the ethics classes that I have to teach. It's not as maybe interesting as some of the newer things like vaccination mandates or in vitro fertilization or um, social justice. Uh, sexuality, some of these things that that are really new to my syllabus on a lot of levels. But but war has really stumped people, uh, Christians in particular, over the years. And so there's we don't have enough time to really sort through all of it in terms of how to process, perhaps as a believer, what to do in this kind of situation. And I think there's maybe one or two, maybe three statements that we could say that we could write in pen and maybe a couple statements that we'd have to write in pencil. Because uh, I think uh, there's a few things if you get overly dogmatic about it, um, maybe maybe you know that you should be cynical of somebody who just absolutely knows the answers here. So here's a couple things as we're puzzling through this that we could probably say in pen. One is that there's really only one eternal government that is worthy of glory, and that is the government of Jesus from Isaiah 9, when it talks about that of the increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's the government that rests on his shoulders, and that's the only one worthy of glory. So we can write that in pen, number one. Uh, number two, what we can write in pen is that countries and empires, they always rise and fall. Uh, if you and I, I mean, I failed ge geography anyway, but if I was to take a geography exam from 1800, the lines on the map and the countries that what they were called in those territories would be very different than today uh, because mm -hmm. the countries and empires are always transient. They're also always won through negotiation or bloodshed or purchase. So th these are earthly concerns in terms of lines on the map uh, most often. These things we can write in pen. Uh, maybe one more thing we could write in pen is that when we see war initiated by God in the Old Testament, it's always a war that's being waged against some expression of sin. That sin is happening in a people, but it is to protect his beloved from that sin, and it's always happening at the end uh, of a long process through tears and grief. So so we can say all of that, uh, Carmen. I think as it relates to this, then, what we would have to say in pencil, um, do we ever— is there ever a situation where you take another image bearer's life to protect another image bearer? And in this case, meaning, is it appropriate to take a Russian life to protect a Ukrainian life? These things are hard. I mean, these are the kinds of questions that they wrestled through in, in the Holocaust, where protecting the Jewish lives uh, from the aggression of Nazi Germany. I think there's something that we see that is rightly ordered about that. Or when I stood on the beaches of Normandy and just wept over the sacrifices, 
but but I think we have to be careful to not just say that that all exists in a one-to-one relationship with God's kingdom, because in, in God's kingdom, um, to take another life is always going to be something of grief. And, and so if we're trying to bring glory to a transient earthly country, and that's the end goal of this, uh, I think we can be supportive of Ukraine and trying to stop the unjust aggression, but I would very much hesitate to bring glory to any country, and that includes the United States of America, which I very much love, and I'm supportive of the military and of the sacrifices that have been made, but I will not give glory to a temporary country. There is only one kingdom in which uh, glory should be given, and that's the kingdom of Jesus who conquered it all uh, at the cross and with that empty tomb. That's our only place of authentic allegiance. So, Peter, you know I have like 10 pages of notes for this conversation today, so we're not going right. to um, be able to pull every thread related to this. But I think what you've said is really, really helpful. Um, on the topic of glory, um, if you're listening right now and you want to you wanna just spend some time today in Psalm 96, that's where I finally settled in terms of my own um, sort of study of this question as it has been emerging um, over the last few days, as I've heard reference uh, over and over again to glory to Ukraine. Um, and so um, I, I really honestly believe God led me to this particular passage of Scripture, because there are so many passages um, where the topic of God's glory and even uh, the glory of Israel or the glory of Lebanon, um, there are mentions of the glory related to nations. But Psalm 96, I felt like, brings the conversation Uh, at the intersection of nations and God's glory together. So I'm just going to read it for us today. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name, proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are but idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of the nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved, and he will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. And he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Mm. Psalm 96. Yeah, Carmen, I think that is absolutely spot on. I think we we could and should spend as much time meditating on that passage about where our final allegiance lies and, and how do we process the events in this world that are so troubling through that kind of lens. I think that's the invitation to not just necessarily align ourselves with a political kind of kingdom, whether it be Republican or Democrat, whether it be uh, Putin or or what's going on in Ukraine, whether it be France here, you just to align yourselves and to try to assume that those kingdoms are the mechanisms by which God is going to bring the true peace into this world. 
I think he's he's developed an entirely different kind of people, Carmen. We're citizens of heaven, and our allegiance is that Psalm 96 allegiance that you said, and, and, and it's through us in different kinds of ways than the kingdoms of this world that we can bring true peace to people. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you, my brother. Blessings hey, on you. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, thank yeah, you. great to talk with you as well. That's Dr. Peter Kapsner. I don't know. I think you can find him on Twitter, although he's not very active there. So just come to the University of Northwestern St. Paul and check in with him there. Uh, you're it. listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and we're going to be right back. just joining us welcome this is mornings with carmen my name is carmen laberge we bring the mind of christ to bear on the matters of the day um, you can check out tons of resources at myfaithradio.com you can download the faith radio app you can listen to prior episodes of the show and share it with somebody else so there you go um so have you heard the term deconstruction or have you wondered what it means for a person to, quote, deconstruct their faith. Um, Have you ever wondered, as I have, why they feel compelled to go public and make such a big public deal um, of their deconversion? Like, right, as as if everybody in the world needs to know that, no, they didn't become a Christian, they became a non-Christian, or they became a different kind of Christian that doesn't believe that people should be led to an understanding of the gospel that includes a confession of sin and a reorientation of life toward Christ. So it's like a little bit like the um, public testimony, I suppose, of Humpty Dumpty at the base of the wall from which he fell, as if Humpty Dumpty just crying out at the base of the wall is something that everybody needed to come and tend to. Not seeming to understand that having a faith that actually works and is functional and makes us functional is uh, seemingly a much better thing. So we're going to talk with Alyssa Childers about deconstruction. She's going to help us understand what it is and what the sort of deconstruction movement is all about. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Alyssa Childers is an American singer and songwriter. She writes at AlyssaChilders.com. It's an apologetics blog for doubting Christians and honest skeptics. Alyssa, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Hey, Carmen. Thanks so much for having me back. So um, I want to talk about the word deconstruction and then the movement that is afoot. So um, let's let's start with your own experience of a form of deconstruction of your faith, um, because I share this in terms of kind of an academic experience, um, but you worked through it. So can you talk about your own experience and then we can get to sort of the phenomenon in the culture? Yeah, sure. So about a little over 10 years ago, my faith was challenged in a church that would go on to identify itself as a progressive Christian community. And my all the beliefs that I had held very precious, these core beliefs of the gospel were deconstructed and sort of picked apart and explained away intellectually, which threw me into my own 
time of dark doubt and deconstruction to where the Lord in his faithfulness uh, ended up reconstructing my faith as I studied the intellectual arguments for the existence of God and truthfulness of Christianity. So it was a long process, a painful process, but I didn't, I never heard that word deconstruction back then. So this is kind of something that has emerged culturally, I think, in the last few years. And it's, uh, like you mentioned, it's kind of become a bit of a movement. So, Alyssa, you, um, I mean, I share some of that experience, um, having gone to a very, very uh, progressive liberal seminary and finding out that the way that my faith had been put together and worked um, was not something that uh, everybody shared an understanding of. And so, um, you know, went through my own challenge related to you have to, you know, have to work through it, have to construct one that works. Um, that is not quite what's going on when we use the term or when we encounter the term deconstruction or maybe deconversion or exvangelical in the culture today. So I know you um, define deconstruction in your book. Can you can you share that definition with us? Yeah, and certainly want to acknowledge that a lot of different people are using that word in different ways. Uh, in fact, I have only recently in the last maybe year or two started to see even more conservative evangelicals use it as more of a positive thing. Like this is just a way to take what you believe and measure it against scripture. So I want to acknowledge that that those usages are out there. But the way I define it, uh, and I have a lot of reasons even going back to postmodern philosophers that I see it connected to, is that it's really the, the process of systematically examining and dissecting the faith you were you were given as a child. So this is people growing up in the church. And often those beliefs are re-examined, very often rejected to where when the faith is reconstructed, if the faith is reconstructed, which sometimes it's not, it doesn't look very much like the faith that they started with. And in many, many cases, it doesn't look like any vestige of the historic Christian faith at all. So it's interesting to me that, um, and I think important, and I appreciate it, that you highlight that the term is being used um, by a range of people in different ways. And I think it's one of those things, um, Alyssa, where I'm, I am learning to slow down and make fewer assumptions when people use a term that I think I understand. Um, and I will ask them, hey, what do you mean by that when you use it? Because I attach a pejorative, um, I mean, like, I, I view it as a pejorative term. Like I view it as negative. Um, and not everybody is viewing it that way. I think they're wrong. Let me just go on record and saying, I think it's wrong to add confusion to this. I think that people who um, are genuinely deconstructionists and ex-evangelicals who genuinely no longer embrace um, the gospel uh, and uh, an understanding of sin as real and um, and salvation as real. Like, I, I think we have to stop and put a stake in the ground and say, um, wait a second, what you are now introducing is a conversation that's just going to further confuse people. So I appreciate the clarity with which you speak about this um, and that, you know, words mean something to you and they can't just mean anything because if they mean anything, they mean nothing. Um, so thank you. Um, how did we go from yeah. it being like a social media hashtag, you know, which some people were kind of out there doing publicly, I think, to almost 
popularize themselves to something that's really almost become a movement. It's very strange to me. Yeah. So if, you know, for anyone listening, what it looks like is maybe you've seen a a Christian music artist or a author come out on social media and say, hey, I had all these questions. No one could answer my questions. And uh, often there are, you know, each individual deconstruction story is, of course, going to look different. But it, eventually at the end, they they express that they've either left the faith or radically redefined it. But then there's also this uh, sentiment often attached to these stories of relief. So you'll see uh, words like, I'm freer than ever. I have this great relief relief. I've gotten to cast off all of this, these restraining dogmas and beliefs, and I've never been happier. And I think that's the part that's confusing a lot of Christians, because I think real authentic Christians, we know that deep joy that comes from walking with the Lord certainly isn't easy. We are commanded to deny ourselves and pick up our cross. So it's not always going to feel good to our emotional feelings, but there's this deep abiding sense of stability and joy. So it's confusing to us when people say, hey, I'm not a Christian anymore, and it's great. It feels great. Everybody join. So then what often we see happen, we saw this with one particular uh, Christian author, very successful author, right at, you know, pretty much after the deconstruction announcement offered to have a class that you could pay, or even if you felt you were harmed by his previous Christian writings, you could take the class for free, but he would essentially walk you through your own deconstruction. So we see deconstruction platforms arising on social media where they will encourage you into your deconstruction. There are therapy sites where you can pay a licensed counselor to walk you through a deconstruction. There are conferences that will walk you through a deconstruction. So in the deconstruction movement, this is seen as you're, you're going to be free from this Christianity that has restrained you for so long. And it really has become a movement. It's very evangelistic. I think there's a bit of a religious nature to it. And uh, I've been studying the movement. I've even talked with people that are prominent in the deconstruction um, space, so to speak. And it is very evangelistic. There's this sense in which they want to provide a space and even invite Christians in to this process of abandoning these core beliefs that they've held uh, for their whole lives. Do these people still call themselves Christians? Some do. So there's a, the thing about deconstruction is it's really more of a vehicle, not a destination. So uh, it, it's it's the process by which people abandon many of the beliefs that they held all their lives. So some will end in a more progressive type of Christianity. Some will end in something that sounds a little bit more Buddhist. Maybe they might not use that label, but it's more Eastern. There's a lot of transcendental meditation type rituals and practices they might end up in. And then some end up as secular humanists or atheists. But so deconstruction really is the vehicle, but it can take you to lots of different uh, destinations. In fact, one deconstructionist I spoke to describes it as an explosion. It's really just, it's like this explosion out from Christianity, but it can land, it can land you anywhere. All right. We're talking with Alyssa Childers. We're talking about um, deconstruction uh, as an event in individuals' lives, but also as a movement. Um, if you're not aware of it, it is happening out there. Um, and there's a lot of social media related to this. Lots of posts on uh, platforms like Instagram related to hashtag deconstruction might be a place where you could see what we're talking about if this is something that is new to you. But it is this process of um, dissecting and then often rejecting 
what I would regard in many cases as the you know sort of historic tenets of the Christian faith. And um, and so what um, if you were Martin Luther and you were to open up you know the drawer? Are you going to dump it out and only put a few things back in, or are you going to um, just take a few things out of the drawer? Like this is one of the ways that some people are pointing to. I'm going to ask Alyssa um, after we take a very brief break. Is that what Martin Luther was doing? Is he just um, deconstructing uh, Catholicism as he experienced it? And is that what Protestantism really is? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right. Is it all about Jesus? Is it all or is it all about me? That's, um, I think, a huge part of the conversation um, going on in the deconstruction movement um, of what I would describe as sort of the Christian version of expressive individualism at work in the culture today. We're talking with Alyssa Childers about the deconstruction movement, her observations related to it. Um, Alyssa, there are some who would say, hey, uh, deconstruction is basically what Martin Luther did. Um, are they right? Yeah, this is the thing. Uh, this is the big claim right now. I've even heard Jesus compared to a deconstructionist. And here's why I hope to persuade Christians like you, Carmen. I think, you know, certainly I acknowledge people are using the word in different ways. I'm hoping to persuade people to stop using the word in reference to something like what Martin Luther did, which was try to get us back to a biblical Christianity, right? Let's reject all of the extra stuff and let's filter everything through scripture. So deconstruction is not what Martin Luther was doing. And I think it's it's really important for people to understand. Now, people will, will say, well, Martin Luther used this uh, word destruction in Latin, uh, I believe, or German, I'm sorry, destruction, or I probably can't pronounce it, but it was rendered in French by a philosopher named Jacques Derrida, and, and I believe it was taken from Martin Luther as deconstruction. Now, the difference, though, is that Derrida was one of the fathers of postmodernism. So he didn't believe that words could be pinned down to singular meanings. Therefore, whatever the author intended had less and less authority than the hearer's interpretation. And that's what I see happening. Now, most deconstructionists are not engaging with the philosophies of Derrida, but they're using his playbook. They're, uh, they've, it's, it's based on moral relativism. It's based on this deconstruction of words. So whether or not they're aware of Derrida, I believe that the, the movement of postmodernism, uh, I'm sorry, of deconstruction is deeply postmodern. And that is not what Martin Luther was doing. Even if you can trace Derrida using a word that Luther had used to inspire him to sort of become the father of deconstruction, it's a completely different thing. And I think Martin Luther would have been uh, perplexed at his word being used in that way. So, you know, it, you might see on social media somebody tracing it back to Martin Luther, but Martin Luther believed that the scripture was the word of God. He believed words had meaning and that we can't just twist the Bible to mean whatever we want it to mean according to our moral preferences, which is what I see happening in the deconstruction movement so often. And again, like I said, a lot of people are using the word more recently, uh, not really aware of how it's being used in the other things. So there's, there's no criticism of those people. I just hope to persuade them to don't, you know, don't use a postmodern word to describe a very biblical practice of, hey, maybe I've got 
to doubt and I want to I want to investigate the truth because doubt and even uh, you know what we might consider to be sanctification or reformation that's all built upon a search for objective truth about what these these truths of God are whereas in the deconstruction movement and how the word has been being used that's really not based on objective truth it's really built more upon I need to figure out what I agree with I need to figure out what works for me what's practical not and, and what works for you and what's practical according to historic Christianity is not always going to be what your heart feels is right in that moment issues of um, authority versus autonomy issues of um, you know sort of feeling my way uh, into something um, one of the things that occurred to me while you were talking is an experience that I had um, you know, in a very liberal denominational context where, you know, they would they would use part of what Luther uh, or really the call one of the call signs of the Reformation in general, just reformed and always being reformed. And they would leave off according to the word of God. So mm. I think that w- 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 that's kind of what's happening. Right. People are, you know, OK, I'm um, I want to be in this refining process, but, you know, not one that's particularly hard. Um, and I want to, um, you know, I, I want to define what being conformed to the world means. I want to define what being transformed by the renewing of my mind means, but not according to the word of God. That, mm. that is, I think, when, you know, when we get down to the root of it, um, if the fruit is deconstruction, the root is uh, a dismissal of the authority of Scripture, walking away from the Bible as the word of God. Yeah, I think you've nailed it on the head. And this is another thing that Christians really need to be aware of. There are a lot of books being written right now, even just being uh, written by self-described evangelical authors that are arguing for radically different understandings of uh, issues like uh, sexuality, issues like gender roles. And these are being sort of smuggled in under the umbrella of evangelicalism because, and, and they'll even say, look, we want to get back to authentic Christianity. But then when you read a lot of these books, what you discover is that the authority to discover what authentic Christianity is, is not scripture. There might be a couple of Bible verses peppered in, but largely these authors in these books are going to be looking to history. They're going to be looking to sociology. They're going to be looking to science and philosophy that's divorced from biblical contexts in order to discover what authentic Christianity is. And you're exactly right. What that ends up being is an authority of the self, autonomy, uh, my own moral compass, looking back over history to see which teachings maybe had a negative effect in someone's life, which teachings had a positive effect in someone's life. And that's how we're going to decide what's authentic Christianity. And I think that's a very dangerous game because we don't have all the information and our moral compasses, as the Bible tells us, are broken. So what we think is good isn't always in reality what's going to end up being good for us. And it doesn't define what authentic Christianity is. God gets to do that through his revealed word. Yeah, the other point that you made earlier about this language related to freedom um, and having this this sense of freedom, um, you got me thinking, Alyssa, I, I think that being a slave to Christ is authentically Christian. I think picking up my cross, being yoked to Christ, being in submission to Christ, Christ being the anchor. Um, I mean, those are not those. Uh, you know, I, the, 
I don't want to be an unfettered fly by night floating around in the breeze. Like I, I want to be anchored to uh, the substantial reality of who Christ is and what he has done, because that that's where my hope is grounded. Mm. Um, and yeah. so I just think there's a different way um, maybe for us to enter the conversation if we're willing to get into, as you, as you have demonstrated a willingness to do. And I so appreciate that. Like, right. If we're willing to get into a conversation with these individuals and say, okay, authentic Christianity is slavery to Christ. I know you don't like that word, but that's what the Bible says. Right. Yeah. No, that's so good because there's a difference between freedom from and freedom to. It can feel very freeing to cast off the fetters of moral restraint, right? It's going to feel freeing to be able to say, hey, I can indulge my passions. I can, I can follow my heart and, and do what feels right for me. But that's actually enslaving you to sin. The Bible says when you, before you are in Christ, you are a slave to sin. And in a way, he sets you free. He sets you free from sin. But as you so rightly pointed out, you become a slave to Christ. And that's going to be a lifelong sanctification process that's going to often feel incredibly uncomfortable. It's going to require us to bow our knee to Christ when we really do want to follow our hearts because that feels better in the moment. But ultimately, you know, this earth is getting us ready for our our eternity with Christ. And that's why it's so important that day by day we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Our minds have to be renewed day by day because we don't know what's best for ourselves. And so I think that's, that's one of the things that people really need to understand about this deconstruction movement is it moves the authority for what is good and what is true and beautiful from Scripture to the self. All right. If you want more from Alyssa Childers, I know you do. AlyssaChilders.com. Um, her book is uh, is excellent. Another Gospel, A Lifelong Christian Seeks Truth in Response to Progressive Christianity. Um, we will post uh, the podcast conversation Alyssa and I had specifically about her book, um, along with uh, today's program as well. Hey, Alyssa, thank you so very much. As always, I, I just love talking with you. Oh, me too. Such a joy. Thanks. Such a joy. Thank you so much. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. We'll be right back. All righty, let me just uh, walk off with a benediction here. Um, to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus, according to the revelation of the mystery that is kept secret from long ages past, now disclosed um, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. That's from Romans 16. Let's be speaking scripture over one another today. Let's be speaking truth Um, into our conversations. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.